This is Steve Kim. Andy Steiger. Welcome to the AC Podcast. On this podcast, we want to help you speak the language of our culture and address questions being asked with intellectual honesty, gentleness, and respect. And welcome to part two of this discussion. Last week, we started talking about Year Million, this show on Disney Plus that deals with technology and how it's going to shape our society and us as human beings. Uh, There was so much to talk about that we couldn't possibly fit everything into a single episode. So here's part two of it. So let's talk about this. One of the things that I want to get into with this conversation, because I find that there's a lot of Christians who don't know how to talk about AI. And Steve, I would argue that one of the reasons why they don't know how to talk or think about AI is that Christians tend to be steeped in a theology that I would call human exceptionalism. This goes back all the way to Thomas Aquinas, and I'm sure it goes even before him. And we've been kind of raised in this idea, this Christian cultural milieu, that to be a human being is to be exceptional. And that has been challenged recently, you know, in the last couple decades, when we see computers that can beat, you know, grandmasters at chess, when we see computers beating Jeopardy champions, more recently when we've seen computers beat Go champions and whatnot. Yeah. The exceptionalness of humans isn't quite there. Because honestly, Steve, when I was growing up, I don't know if it was the same for you, but when I was growing up, we would often talk about the complexity of the human mind and how it's more complex than any supercomputer and and all these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. And that made us exceptional. And that secured our identity going, okay, I know that a machine isn't human because I am far greater than a machine. But that really starts to get challenged when we start to see machines becoming exceptional and when they start to become even better than humans. And if you notice in the show, the language that they use is very different from what we grew up with, right? Whereas we grew up with that kind of human exceptionalism kind of a talk where we are better than machines. They talk about the bondage of the brain chemistry, how you're trapped in your body and that you need to, if you upload yourself, upload your mind or consciousness to the cloud, and now you have all of this freedom, you're going to be able to interact with others in a way that is way more efficient than what our mere physical components can do, right? So, the the language is very much the other way in this show. Right, and I would absolutely challenge that and want to get into this concept because I think this will help people as they're just watching these sorts of shows or reading these sorts of articles. If we're not distinguishing humans from machines because we're exceptional, you know, because we have rationality or consciousness or good at certain things, you know, what are we basing it on? And I would actually make this argument, Steve. I would argue that humanity is not based in any of those things and that you can create a machine that can behave absolutely human and be so identical to humanity, you know, that it would pass the strongest of Turing tests, and it is still not human. And I think that we can easily make this argument by contesting one great quote from the show, 
I had to write it down. I wasn't able to catch the guy's name, but he writes that nothing makes us uniquely human. And we could easily contest that. I don't even have to contest that theologically. Obviously, as a Christian, I'm going to argue that I am uniquely human in that I am made in the image of God and that I have been created specifically to be in relationship with God and other people. If I was going to get right to the heart of the issue, I'm going to go there. There's no doubt about it. But I can make a secular argument to dismantle this as well. And that would be that this is not correct. There is something that makes us uniquely human, particularly if you're going to juxtapose us to a machine, and that is that humans create machines. Machines do not create humans. And you can have a world of only humans and no machines. You cannot have a world of only machines and no humans. Now, somebody I know that's thinking will say, well, couldn't you have a, a world of machines but no humans? Uh, yes, in the sense that machines could kill off all the humans, I guess. Like the Terminator scenario, right? <laughs> yeah, like Terminator. But those machines owe their ontological existence to humanity. They wouldn't have been there to destroy humanity if humanity hadn't created them in the first place. That's right. Now, do you remember, Steve, you and I were in San Diego and I was in the throes of a logical pretzel. Do you remember this? <laughs> because I was working the logic of this out. And you and I had this moment as I'm working out the logic of particularly this argument that machines come from humans, which has ontological implications, unique ones. Right. And, uh, and we had this moment where it was funny because you, you actually tipped me off to this. I got to give you credit. As you said, Andy, I don't think you're Did working I? in... Well, remember you said, Andy, I don't think you're working in the right logical frame of mind here that this looks to me like it's modal logic. Oh, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And that sent me off into modal logic, specifically system K, uh, for those of you hardcore nerds out there. And that absolutely, this is an argument from necessity. And if, if there's, I know we have some different professors that listen to the show. If you're a philosophy prof, I'd encourage you to give this one some thought. But there is an argument from necessity that's taking place here that makes a necessary ontological distinction between humans and machines, given that machines come from humans. It means then that no matter how similar a machine may be to a human, it can never be human because it was created by a human. And particular, I would make another argument that a machine is always defined by its purpose. Thus, any machine that's created by a human, if it's created in such a way as to pass the Turing test, for example, and if you're not familiar with that, it's just the idea of mimicking a human. And if a machine can mimic a human in such a way that you've been convinced, it would be said to pass the Turing test, or for many people, it would qualify for strong artificial intelligence. Meaning they're human. Meaning that the machine would be human. However, given my argument, all that you've created is a machine that was created for the purpose of passing the Turing test. You have a human mimicking machine. In fact, that's what I would argue that artificial intelligence is. Yeah. And you mentioned this before a number of times where there are certain things that are inspired by something else, but what's inspired is not the same thing as what inspired is. So, for example, a bird and an airplane, right? You mentioned about how airplanes were inspired by 
birds, how they fly and how they use aerodynamics and all of these things. But we wouldn't ever look at an airplane and call it a bird. They mimic what birds do. They imitate it, but they're still not birds. And then I started thinking, what if we created machines that look just like birds? But then I came down to the same conclusion, right? Well, these are bird mimicking machines, but they're not birds. And so I find your ontology of purpose, namely how things are what they are on the basis of their purpose, I find it helpful because it helps me get through a lot of different kind of weeds to see the issue a little bit more clearly. It gives me a different way to look at this issue. Before we continue, a message from Andy. Hi, listeners. This is Andy Steiger. If you've been enjoying the topic of our conversation today, I go into a lot more detail on these sorts of things from a Christian perspective in my new book, Reclaimed, How Jesus Restores Our Humanity in a Dehumanized World. It's coming out September 1st. I'd encourage you to pre-order it today on amazon.com or .ca. And now, back to the podcast. Here's what here's what I want to get into. Uh, this is one last um, stop, one last philosophical stop that I think that we need to make, particularly in the area of philosophy of mind. And we need to do so because they do so on the show. I was kind of surprised that they brought qualia into the mm, conversation, yeah. which is in philosophy of mind is a discussion of sensation. And, and this becomes particularly challenging. And again, they give this whole conversation a nice gloss, but they don't get into the actual issues at hand. And so, let me just tease this out for you listeners so you can kind of experience, if you will, um, no pun intended, <laughs> with qualia. Again, only the real nerds are laughing at this moment. Uh, with the challenge that's taking place when you're just mimicking a human. So, take this as an example. If strong artificial intelligence is this idea that a machine is a human being, and particularly it is human if it behaves human, then what do we make of a machine that is in pain? So, if I come across an artificial intelligent machine, and this machine is in pain, what actually is happening there? Is that actual qualia? Is that an actual sensation? Well, we would say of the machine, well, no, the machine has been programmed that if its hand gets hit with a hammer, it initiates a code that says that the machine should behave in these sorts of ways. In other words, it's pretending or mimicking what a human or how a human would behave if in pain, which raises the question then, is the machine actually in pain because it demonstrates the behavior of pain? Yeah, and that's the key thing about qualia, right? So, qualia is sensation, but not just sensation. It's experienced sensation, right? So, it's the what it's likeness of things. So, when you see a red object, you know what it's like to see a red object. When you're in pain, you know what it's like to be in pain. So it's sensation that is not just input-output, but it's the experienced sensation. In other words, when there is this qualia, it seems to suggest that there is a, an agent or a subject of that experience. But insofar as we know of these machines, these are just 
input output in the same way that 2 plus 2 equals 4 doesn't experience anything these strings of codes themselves don't experience anything I guess if you wanted to make an argument from human exceptionalism, this would be the one you would make. And this is often called the strong case for consciousness, that there is a distinction between behaving in conscious ways and actually experiencing consciousness. And this idea that I am a self-conscious person and that I have experiences and I know from a first-person perspective of what it is to be in pain. And I think that you can easily make the argument that a machine that's behaving to be in pain is not the same thing as actually experiencing pain. And again, this is one of those fundamental distinctions between a machine and a human that often is missed, and that is, a machine is made of metal, I am made of skin. Or maybe a better analogy would be, a machine is made of silicone, I am made of skin. I'm made of flesh and blood, a machine is not. Then to say that a machine is experiencing the world as a human is just, again, categorically mistaken. It is not. It's not a biological machine. And I think that there's an interesting argument that can be made that an animal is a biological machine. And I personally don't have a problem with the idea that humans could one day create a machine that is very similar to a dog, for example. Yet, humans seem quite unique in this regard, and I don't want to I don't want to stake anything on this. I mean, it could be the case that in the future they can create technology that behaves absolutely like a human being and is identical, something to the effect of like if you've seen the movie Blade Runner 2049, you know, I'm talking something like hardcore like that. Like that's another level of AI. And okay, maybe that's possible. I I really don't have a problem with that. Because I would not classify that as a human being still. I think ontologically it's not a human being. We've already talked about that. But there's another aspect that doesn't get brought up in the show, and I think that we need to mention here quickly. And that is the problem of solipsism. And that is is that we're talking about issues of first-person perspective. This is something that becomes very difficult then to say, and I thought this was actually kind of hilarious that they tried arguing that there was a machine that was experiencing some level of sensation. I'm like, do you not even have like logic 101 going? Like, how could you ever make that claim? I remember watching that professor from Columbia University who's into robotics, right? And he makes this very simple robot. Uh, and he talks about how it senses the world and it's aware of its own existence because when you chop off one legs, it, it knows what happened and how to, you know, adjust accordingly, all that kind of stuff. And I'm just like, I was just about ready to pull out the hair that I don't have. I'm just like, <laughs> come on. Like, already you are begging the question by saying it is sensing the world and is aware of the self because that's exactly what we are talking about. Does it sense the world? Does it experience things, right? I was freaking out too. I was on the edge of the couch going, you know, the philosopher in me was ready to put a chokehold on the man. Uh, Because yeah, like 
That's the whole problem. I mean, this is what philosophy has been debating for a long time. How do I even know, you know, that Steve is conscious? Mm-hmm. How do I even know that Steve is in pain? I I can't. Not from a first-person perspective, only Steve can, mm-hmm. right? What can I do, though? And this is what is so important and unique about being human beings, is I know that I have a similar construct to you. I know that when you are grimacing in certain ways, right, in with regards to certain actions, and those actions happen to me, I have a similar response, again, first person that takes place. There, there are these ways that we as humans then are able to detect consciousness in other human beings, that we then grant that they must be experiencing this first-person perspective of, you know, they're, they're experiencing qualia, in this case, they're experiencing pain. And Steve, I would argue that this is why the programmers, I find, don't get caught up in this quite as much, because I think they've popped the hood. They see that they have programmed that sensation into the machine. They've programmed that into the algorithm, right? They've programmed it to behave in a certain way. Qualia is the sort of thing, that's why they call it the hard problem of consciousness, right? It's the sort of thing that you just can't get access to. And so, they're making a huge logical leap when they want to say that, you know, that something is is behaving in those sorts of ways. We we can't make those sorts of pronouncements. And, and just to kind of crystallize even more, the idea here is that we seem to have this, there seems to be this quality about our minds where there is the inability to access someone else's, right? Like I have private access to my mind that nobody else has. Now, as Christians, we would say, well, God is a, he's on the different order of being altogether. But insofar as humanity is concerned, I have no access to your mind. You have no access to my mind, but you have access to your own mind, as do I. I have access to my own mind. That is something that is just very different from what we have in the machines. It it does get concerning for me, you know, when people watch shows like that and you know, you just feel for them because they don't see the full complexity of the issue. And, and so, I think that's why, you know, we had some listeners that asked us if we would talk about this show. I wanted to say one thing, one last thing as we close here. Lots more we could talk about. And if anything that we've said here, you'd like to know more about uh, or want us to go deeper into, by all means, you know, let us know. I know this is a complex issue that we've just been kind of skimming over, but uh, hopefully we've given you something to think about. But there was a scene in the show, I don't know if you saw this, I'm sure you did, Steve, took note of, the daughter that, you know, is reincarnated technologically, if you will, brought back from the dead as this machine with all of the thoughts or memories of of their child. They don't really talk about whether or not that child's going to continue to grow, you know, and all these other things. I mean, it, there's a whole host of of other problems there, but... There's a moment where the dad is just kind of contemplating all of this and contemplating how smart his daughter's become now that she's got access to all the knowledge on the web and whatnot, and asks uh, something to the effect of, does she know what the meaning of all this is, right? Does she know what the meaning of life is, if you will? I can't remember exactly how he asked it, but yeah, something, yeah. you know, why are we here? No, I think that's what he asked, you know, do you know why we're here? 
Yeah. Something to that effect. She kind of avoids the question, I noticed. Well, she says, first she says, well, of course I do. And then it's just kind of this pregnant pause where you're like, oh, perfect. I'd like to hear what this you know, machine's going to say. And then if you remember, uh, she walks over and gives her dad a hug. Yeah. Which uh, I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, that A, I didn't see that coming. And B, boy, is that communicating a, a whole lot. And really raises some significant questions about our relational nature as human beings. That Again, this goes back to my theological point, that as human beings, we have been created by God to be in relationship with God, but we've also been created by God who has created human beings and created us to be in relationship with other human beings. And that this is a fundamental aspect of who we are, and I think it's interesting that even this TV show recognizes that, that that need for relationship truly answers at a foundational level of what it means to be human. The problem is, and this is a major problem in secular culture, is how exactly are you going to make that argument? How do you arrive at the idea that all of this is about a hug? Because funny enough, I think her answer is right. It's not a big enough hug, but I think it's, I think it's right. But how are you going to arrive at that conclusion? And and here's one other thing that goes along with that. And this is a darker side that didn't really come out. And that is the father-daughter, mother-daughter relationship is a good relationship. But what if it wasn't a good relationship before the daughter died? Could the reincarnated daughter, this new technological, better, smarter version... Um, what if her personality got some upgrades? What if her moodiness got some upgrades? What if her love for her father and her mother got some upgrades and the like? There's a dark side, we call this evil, you know, that comes along with the good in our world. We know that relationship is good when it's right, but we also know that relationship is evil when it's wrong, when it's bent. That was one of the key things that I noticed was because they talk about how, you know, we're going to be able to create this basically digital world, this metaverse where we are living in this virtual reality, kind of like the matrix, but that is that becomes our permanent home because everything is taken care of. We are basically immortal. One thing that I really hesitated on is, okay, how is that going to change our relationship? Because in a very critical way, our relationship is shaped by our need for one another. But when we become immortal and we really don't need anybody else, what's that relationship going to look like? Or am I going to be left with just my own selfish nature? That That's one thing. Don't you think a Christian would push back on you on that and say, but wouldn't that apply to heaven as well? Um, I don't think it would because in heaven, we're still limited Right? We're still dependent uh, on God. We're dependent uh, because the whole framework in the Christian worldview is that, that we are designed to be in relationship with one another. But from a secular worldview, we're not designed for that. It's just our, if anything, that's just our working out of our genetic makeup. If we're genetically altered on the fundamental level, like kind of more like a lone wolf, right? 
then we wouldn't want to be with anybody else. And in this kind of a digital world, when all of our needs are met, we're immortal, we live in virtual eternity, that sort of a thing, I wonder how that's going to change things. Well, it seems to me then what you're saying is that that digital world can never satisfy you. Mm. A, because it would never provide you God or deeper relationship than just yourself. I Personally, I see that digital world being very similar to C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I was thinking was because I, I still remember seeing that image right at the beginning of that book where there's this picture of hell and the dwellings, the deeper you go into hell, become further and further apart where in the deepest reaches of hell, you see Napoleon's mansion where he it's just him and him alone and his grumbling, blaming all of his failures on everybody else but himself, that sort of a thing. So that was the first thing that came to my mind. Secondly, I mentioned this one once before briefly, but there seems to be this assumption that whatever good or evil is in our genes, basically, right? But what if our evil is not in our genes? What if it's something deeper? And as we get, quote unquote, upgrades, what if that gets upgraded, right? What is the... And and isn't it more than that too, Steve? What does it get upgraded to? Mm-hmm. What, what does it even mean to be morally upgraded? Who gets to decide exactly. uh, in a secular culture, right, what's an upgrade? Yeah, because we talked about this when we were talking about teaching robots ethics, right? When you uh, design a car and you design it so that, you know, like if it has to crash into something, you design it so that if there is a possibility to crash into things rather than people, we programmed these ethics into these machines. So then the question is, as we are building this kind of a future for ourselves, whose ethics are we going to follow? Because in a completely secular world, it's just all relativistic. It's just one group versus another. Steve, this is why I think it's important for people to appreciate when they're thinking about the future I know people get caught up in a lot of the cultural debates that we're having these days, whether it's debates with regards to homosexuality, transgender, you name it. These are all hot topic questions that get debated in our culture. I would personally argue that these are only bus stops along the way to much deeper issues. And ultimately, I see AI is one of the next bus stops that we're heading to with regards to these important cultural questions that we're grappling with that are really challenging the very fabric of what it means to be a human being. In particular, I can't help but think, Steve, that one thing that Christians, I think, need to really give thought to and appreciate is that the bus stops, if you will, just to keep with C.S. Lewis's idea in The Great Divorce, the bus stops, the, the deeper we go, are each route we go is divorcing ourselves more and more from God, but also from each other. And if I were to like pull out a crystal ball of a dystopian you know, future that would be year million, what, what do things look like? It would be that technology is leading us, and I think 
I think this is so well put by Sherry Turkle in her book, Alone Together, you know, that we, we see a future where we're alone. It's a future where we use technology to attend to our every need and at the same time missing the very fundamental need that we have for community. And, 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 and what I think you get is a person that is in turmoil, a person that is never satisfied. And I, I think, <laughs> you know, when futurists want to talk about people living forever, I just can't help but think that, that we are seeing a modern day version of hell coming to light where people could potentially, if, if this was possible, you know, live forever, technologically speaking, in this state of wrestling, right? In this state of trying to satisfy yourself, but never being satisfied. Yeah. And that is my concern, right? And really, when I look at the transhumanist message, what I see is an alternate gospel. They just identify the problem as something different than sin, their solution is technology. So, the transhumanist gospel, if you will, is that the fundamental problem is that we are physically limited and that we're frail and the, these physical weaknesses and, and we're trapped. It's very Gnostic in a sense, right? We're kind of a, we're these beings that are trapped within our own bodies. And the solution is technology. So genetic engineering, cybernetics, uploading our consciousness to the cloud, so on and so forth. And then the final picture is the utopia where all of these problems, all of the tears are wiped away and we can live forever. And so I look at that and I go, well, I'm not against technology per se, but the transhumanist worldview doesn't seem to be something that I can affirm as a Christian because it is a different gospel altogether. I'm absolutely with you on that, Steve. I am 100% for technology. I am not 100% for the philosophies that are leading some of our technologies and some of our technological pursuits. I do personally find it quite fascinating that we have completely immersed ourselves in the idea of building technologies to create human beings and at the same time have lost sight of human beings. Why is it that for so much of our technology, it's this idea that we want to create you know, an artificial human being, but yet there are human beings all around us that are in need that we are not seeing and that, that we could create technologies to help people and we do. I don't want to say that we don't. But this is one of those fundamental ideas that distinguishes between artificial intelligence and, and intelligence augmentation. These are two different philosophical ways of seeing things. You know, the distinction between trying to create a computer that helps me as a human being, that's intelligence augmentation, versus creating a computer to be a human. And I think personally, Steve, that there are deep theological issues that are going on that are driving these technologies. And ultimately, I think it's our sin nature that's driving some of these technologies and desires to create, whether it be a chat bot, whether that be a sex bot, those sorts of technologies. You know, any technology that's trying to replace relationally a human being 
that is absolutely contrary to a Christian worldview. Christian worldview is deeply rooted in the concept of, of you and I needing to be in relationship with God and people. It's that flawed, broken, evil aspect of us, though, that seeks to fill those deepest needs in us with everything other than God and people. And technology has just become our best invention yet to do that. You know, as soon as COVID-19 thing is over, I got to come to your place, get into the hot tub with some beverages and discuss more of this. A sip and Um, dip, Steve. A sip and dip. That's right. We need a sip and dip. (laughs) It's interesting you should say that, by the way. One last thought on the show. They kept talking about how great the future will be when we have robots to do everything for us and we won't have to work. And I was like, Mm. clearly they made this show before COVID-19 pandemic. I know so (laughs) many people, you know, that haven't been working for the last three months and they are losing their minds. Mm -hmm. Uh, That if that doesn't just ring dystopia to you, I don't know what will. All right. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us on this, another edition of the AC Podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada. Hopefully, some of what we said resonated with you and was helpful to you. And we'll see you next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, take care. Take care.